I just want to jump in really quickly to ask a very important favour. We know that most of you who listen to No Bullshit Leadership haven't yet hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite podcast player. This is how the podcast grows. And even though we've already got a pretty decent global following, we're only scratching the surface of what's possible. We started this podcast over five years ago with the lofty ambition of improving the quality of leaders globally. So if you've got any benefit at all from listening to the podcast, I'd ask you to just take a moment, literally a moment, to hit the subscribe or follow button on your favourite player. The world needs more no-bullshit leaders, and you can help us to make that happen. Back to the episode. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage, to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership, or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 137 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, Professional Gamer to Marketing Icon, an interview with Eric Sue. In this week's episode, I talk with marketing icon Eric Sue. Now, M managed to secure this interview with a man who was instrumental in us understanding how to build our business in a world that requires mastery of both physical and digital marketing channels. So for those of you building your own businesses right now, this episode will be absolutely invaluable. For those of you working in larger corporations at any level, Eric shares his insights and hard-earned wisdom on everything from long-term versus short-term focus, Uh, dealing with company turnarounds in the direst of circumstances, why continuous improvement is so important yet sometimes so elusive, building success by getting through the daily grind, 
and even how to handle a work-from-home culture. I know you're going to love this episode, so let's get into it. Today, I'm incredibly excited to welcome our guest, Eric Sue, to the podcast. Eric is CEO of leading marketing agency, Single Grain, which he bought in 2013 for $2 and has since turned it into a multi-million dollar powerhouse. Eric has an intriguing background. An underperformer through school and college, Eric sought refuge in the world of online gaming. And he figured out a way to use the skill and expertise he'd learned from the gaming world as a metaphor for approaching both business and life. Fast forward only a few short years, and what you see today is an incredibly successful entrepreneur who shares his wisdom with the world through his podcast, Leveling Up. Eric also produces the Marketing School podcast, which he co-hosts with marketing guru, Neil Patel. And Eric, I know that Em attributes a lot of the marketing techniques that she used to build our business to your content, which is why it's such a pleasure to be talking with you today. So welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, and thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Marty. Now, Eric, before we start, I just want to say that I absolutely loved your book, Leveling Up. I was going to flick through it in preparation for the interview, but I found myself absolutely mesmerized. Applying the concept of gaming to the structure of the book not only made the learning fun and interesting, but it also massively increased my retention of the concepts. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, it's really the, the book I, I wish I had when I was 13 years old. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad the, you know six years of work took to, to pump this thing out. So. Yeah, for sure. I know what that's like. So speaking of the book, I love the concept that there's a difference between playing simply to attain a certain level and playing to optimize learning. So the former enables you to reach a goal, but the latter makes your future potential virtually limitless. What was it that gave you this insight? Was it just understanding the nature of short-term versus long-term gratification, or, or was there more to it than that? Yeah, I think I realized this when I was doing, uh, one good example is, is doing the, the Leveling Up podcast. So the first year I was doing it, spending six hours a week on it while I was trying to save uh, single grain. And um, I was only getting nine downloads a day after the first year. And I, I did the s- same thing for the second year, only 30 downloads a day for the second year. And um, had I only focused on my views or my listens, um, which I, I would, I use a very strong word. I say, I tell myself, stop being so egotistical, right? So don't focus on the views, forget about that. Cause you know, that takes time. Um, I reframed my mind to think about, you know, wh- what am I truly getting from doing all these podcasts? Well, reality is I'm building relationships with amazing people. I was also selfishly getting able to ask questions to help save the business that I took over. Um, and so I, I got a lot more value than whatever downloads I could have, like, I, I probably would have traded the learnings and the relationships more than a million downloads, you know, after the first year. So um, I learned to optimize for the long term, which is uh, relationships and learnings, um, more so than going for views. And I, I think it's a, a lot of life is just kind of reframing how you think about certain things. And I think that's one good example of it. Yeah, mate, that's a fantastic example. Now, obviously, this is a leadership podcast. You didn't get to where you are without utilizing the skills and talents of your teams. And I was amazed at the consistency of the concepts between the world of gaming and the world of business. So what was it that gave you the confidence to apply your learnings to business? And were you concerned initially that the principles that made you successful in one context may not have been transferable to another? Yeah, I mean, I I think the best example of this uh, was my poker playing days. I think poker should be required learning in school. Um, and, and not not just, you know, not to be, become a gambler, but it forces you to think long term, you either you mismanage your bankroll, you go bust, you overcommit in certain scenarios, you go bust. Um, and, and 
in just like in real life, you know, you can bring your A game three months, six months, twelve months at a time, and the variance or the math will catch up to you. You and, and it doesn't matter. You still lose, and it's also how you manage your composure there. Because the one thing that you can control happens to be very difficult to control, which is your emotions. And most people just lose it. I used to, you know, when I was like nineteen years old or so, I would lose all my money and I would go nuts. I would, you know, scream right in the car, and uh, it, it was pretty sad at times. I'd be with my friends. We'd all leave. We're in college, you know, we'd all go bust, and then I'd have two dollars and quarters in my car, and we'd all have to share like a burger from, uh, you know, McDonald's or something like that, right? So um, it's just, you know, you realize that you don't ever want to be in those scenarios again, and uh, you realize that there are scenarios where um, you learn how to think in bets and where you you go for it, right? And those of you that understand poker, if you have like a straight flush draw um, where you have a, a big opportunity to win lots of money, and there's four or five other people involved in, in the hand you actually are favored there, right? So there's gonna be scenarios in life where you are favored to win, and that's when you press and you bet really hard, right? Um, so I, I think poker really taught me to think long-term and, and to think about, that game taught me to think about business as, as a game. And um, largely everything I do today, if we, if we bring it back to the business world, if I'm looking at buying another company right now, I'm looking at, okay, how can I have it be a one plus one equal five scenario where, they have a strong website, they have a strong executive team, and they have other assets that we just don't have. And so, and then, then at the game after that is how do I play around with the terms to make it favorable for, or good for them, but also favorable for us. So you're just games within games. And then you just realize that you just keep playing this stuff until the day you die and the game never ends. It's just you versus you. <laughs> Mate, that is so true. And some of the biggest negotiations I've been involved in are like a complex game. We actually use game theory to predict and deal with certain scenarios that may unfold during the course of the negotiation. Now let's move on a little to talk about leadership structures. Through Single Grain, you've worked with some of the world's top brands and also many of the fast growth unicorns in Silicon Valley. There's a perception that brands like Google and Facebook hire really smart people and just let them go to be creative. They theoretically get out of their way. But in an organisation that large, surely leadership hierarchy and structure must be part of their success. So my question is, what common elements have you seen in these ultra-successful firms when it comes to leadership? Yeah, I think it applies to really uh, everybody. So, you know, funny story, when I first took over, uh, when I first took over Single Grain, which we, we now have an operator that runs that company, and, and I, I kind of try to jump around. Um, I'm happy to talk about that. But I, I read this book called Let My People Go Surfing, and it was from the Patagonia co-founder. And I took it a little too literally, and I was like, oh, yeah. People don't want to be micromanaged. People don't like just let them do their thing, right? So I took it too literally and I stopped showing up to the office. <laughs> and um, what happened after that, th that this really helped me reinforce the whole Ronald Reagan quote, uh, trusts, but verify. Yeah. And so I was definitely not verifying, you know, things were falling apart. People were telling me people were coming into the office, um, wearing whatever they wanted to wear. Um, like we're talking about like pajamas type of stuff and they're eating chips and watching family guy. Right. So it was, it was self-destructive <laughs> on my side. Um, and I, I just, I learned that, you know, when it comes, when it's a very high risk type of role, um, let's say you're trying to hire a CEO, you probably want to hire someone that's been there, done that. Uh, just like you would with surgery, right? You want someone that's done the surgery a thousand times versus someone that has potential. Now, if it's a more junior role, like an intern or maybe a, a mid-senior level role, you can probably take more risks. I mean, I mean, the higher up it goes, I think the more you just hire someone that's been there, done it. Um, so, you know, when you look at like a, 
like an Amazon, if they decide to go into streaming, they're going to hire someone probably from Netflix. Um, if they look at going into the cloud, you know, they've hired someone that, that that's kind of been there, done that. Um, so I, I think you see the same thing playing out over and over, which is why in tech, you see the same uh, executives getting poached over and over. Um, so I, I just think that's what it is. The, 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 that's why people get paid the big bucks. And, and I don't think people should complain about it. It's, there's a reason for it. Oh, absolutely. Now, talking about people and how you set the standards for them, you originally operated single grain using a remote working model for your staff. Then later you changed it to a hybrid model where everyone spent three days in the office each week and two days remotely. So you certainly had the COVID lockdown thing all sorted out well in advance, right? But Eric, can you give us some perspective on what you think is lost when everyone works remotely? Yeah, it's so we when I took over the company, there was an office and then I, I shut it down and which was stupid because I didn't build rapport with the team. It just I made a lot of knee jerk moves. Um, and, and then we went to we eventually when when the company was coming back up, um, by the way, we dropped all the way down to one employee, had no idea what I was doing. And then uh, when the company was coming back up, we're like, OK, it, it's time to build you know, an office, it's time to build a culture. And what you find there is culture is this word that's kind of loosely tossed around, but it, it really, really is very much, if the culture is how you do things, it is very much the micro interactions you're having with everyone, um, the lunches you have with people, all that type of stuff, it all adds up into how you behave as, as a unit. And I, I think that's super important. So, you know, when COVID hit last year, we, obviously we all switched into fully remote. Um, we were, we did have a model where we were coming into the office three days a week, you know, two days were remote and everybody loved that. It was a really good balance. What we're finding now, even though, you know, we've decommitted from the office, we're finding the, the discussions I'm having with, with people on the single rating side is, you know, they do miss the office, right? Like even if it's a two to three day thing, it's important because those days, the relationship building that you get, like, I think that's a retention mechanism as well. So I don't think um, that's ever going to be replaced. Like you have to be meeting with human beings. Like even the best remote companies I know, I have a friend that runs a company that that's, you know, now worth, uh, I think it's a couple billion now. He's got three or 400 people all fully remote, but they do meet as an entire unit once or twice a year. And plus they have their, their, you know, your kind of a closer team. You're meeting probably um, every quarter at the very least, if not every month. Yeah, right. So there's got to be that interaction. I completely agree. Yeah. Now you talk about building confidence by doing the boring shit that you may not want to do at the start and persevering with it. If you push through the grind, things get easier and events conspire to make you successful. So for example, in chapter four of your book, you introduce a bonus for reaching that level. But you don't know that's going to happen until you get there, of course. How important has that been as a predictor of success in your journey? Yeah, so just to clarify, um, are you asking... So I just want to get a better understanding of the question. Yeah. Oh, sorry, mate. I, I didn't word that particularly well. Let me have another crack at it. Just in terms of success principles overall, do you find that the further you go, the more that events conspire to accelerate your success, and in particular... When things get really hard, they don't discourage you or slow you down because you realize that at some point yeah. you're going to reach that level where all the bonuses come at once. Yeah, I, I think it's it's having that long term mindset. So I, I think in, in some in a lot of cases, actually, in life, you just mirror the people that are that are successful, been there, done that. So when you look at like a Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, you know, you look at how they've behaved with their stocks. It's largely a buy and hold type of model. They just like, they let it compound over time and all the good things happen later, but they have a very long-term outlook and they're not trying to, you know, have all these knee jerk reactions where they're selling things or day trading and things like that. Right. Um, and I think for the vast majority of people, 
people think too short term. It's short term profits. Look at my Lamborghini. Look at my big house. Look at all the money I have. And, and you know, you, you shoot these videos. And, um, you know, why I think that there's a very small subset of people in life that think long term that are willing to defer the profits and, and defer and, and just grind it out. Yeah. And, and if you look at a Jeff Bezos or even even Elon Musk, like or, or Warren Buffett, they're just having fun and they just know that to get the best gains long term, you redeploy the capital. Um, and so does Jeff need to work anymore? No, none of these guys need to work anymore. Right. Um, and the gals that out there that, that are billionaires as well, they don't need to. It's just they're incentivized to think that way. And if you think about at least in California, in the United States, you're paying 50 to maybe even the 60 percent on taxes now. Why do so many rich people still live in California? My hypothesis is a lot of these are investors and they just keep redeploying the capital so they don't really get taxed, right? Um, so my point on all this is just, you know, the long-term thinking is it's easier said than done. But I think once you, you're able to reframe your mindset into like, it's a little power up, right? You're, you're able to kind of tweak the mind a little bit. It's like, oh, I don't need that much to survive. Let's just cover my um, my expenses and then everything else. Let's just keep um, adding value and making an impact on the world and just, you know, redeploy it into R&D to hiring people and all that type of stuff. Yeah, that's such a great philosophy, Eric. Now let's shift gears a little. Advertising's changed a lot over the years. There's an old saying that you'd be well familiar with that at least half of your advertising spend is wasted you just don't know which half. Nowadays, of course, digital marketing is extremely data-driven, it's quantifiable, and it's very scientific. So how has that changed the game in agency land, and how do you stay on top of that game strategically? Yeah, so I would say, you know, well, the funny thing is, um, you know, the world is, is trending more, the pendulum's swinging back into privacy, right? So, you know, we, we might lose a lot of those, a lot of tracking capabilities, but I still think it's, it's much better than what we used to have. Um, so I think there's there's a happy medium right i think there could there are scenarios where you focus too much on the data and you forget about okay how do we how do we build you know brand for the long term right and a lot of there's the, the intangible stuff um so don't get me wrong working with a lot of you know the SaaS companies or tech companies in the world you know it's, it's very much focused on hey you know um if we spend ads here we want to be driving it for you know this cost right uh, but just keep in mind, if you focus too much on the metrics, it becomes short-sighted and you forget about all the other possibilities out there. Because, you know, a lot of this other stuff, it's harder to quantify. If you're doing podcast advertising, influencer marketing, um, maybe even buying a billboard, right? Like that stuff is still relevant. And I come from a digital background and I love data. Um, so I think it's, it's you you don't want to swing too much on, on, on one side or the other. I think it's a happy medium and it's it's having very strong views, but holding them loosely. If you're presented with more data that proves you wrong, be okay and just move on. It's not about you being right or wrong. It's just about doing the right thing. So, Oh, I love that, Eric. That concept of holding strong views but holding them loosely, I think that's just brilliant. So how much does your own decision-making rely on facts and data versus experience and judgment and gut feel? I think it's a miss. I, I, I think first you start with... Um, you start with gut feeling and then you let the, the, the data continue to help you iterate. I, I think it's, especially like if you're building a new product, right? Let, let's use our software company as an example. Over the years, first it was gut feeling. We, we surveyed the audience and then they said they wanted this type of product. And then, you know, we got them to pay for it, right? And then there's a little more iteration right there. Then we started to build stuff and then it's like, okay, they didn't like this, we iterated more. And so I just look at, you know, life, I mean, yourself, like me, I'm a product, I'm continually iterating, I'm continually getting better, I'm, I'm continually collecting more information, right? So I am my own product that I'm constantly trying to, to improve on. Same thing with any service or, or same thing with any product. I think you start with gut first and then uh, you go search. I think the moment, uh, I, at least for me, the moment I stop being curious, that's when I start to slow down. 
which which is fine. Maybe maybe at some point I will want to slow down. So, <laughs> okay, Eric. Well, at the moment it doesn't sound like it, but let's just hold that thought, shall we? Now, look. As far as the challenge of the turnaround, your time at Treehouse must seem like a long time ago, but it typifies your pattern of going into a company that's failing and breathing life back into it. It's rare to find a leader who can thrive in both growth and turnaround environments. Which one are you best in, and which one do you enjoy the most? <laughs> if I could do single green again, I probably wouldn't do it. Uh, the, so that that was a full that was a full turnaround, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. I think the the treehouse scenarios where we had a a great vision, we had a great team, and we had a great product. Um, so everything lined up. Like I remember, like we would meet up together, and everyone's like, "These are types of people." Like everyone I was with, these are people that could work at Facebook, Google, Amazon at the time, and um, it was just we were really lacking on the marketing side. And coming from a gambling background, um, I, I decided to go all in. I bet the entire company on YouTube advertising after the CEO said, um, "We're got to fire you." A month into the job, he was like, "We're got to fire you," and um, if you don't hit numbers this month, and uh, eighty people's families are riding on your shoulder. So I was. 26 years old at the time. And I was like, okay, well, I, I think I'm going to make a bet. Okay, here, all in on YouTube. And, and thankfully it worked out, right? I'm not going to act like I'm some kind of genius. I saw some numbers. I don't know why we shut down YouTube ads. I said, hey, I have to hit numbers this month. So, okay, why not? And uh, yeah, thank God it worked out. Uh, talking about single grain, did I hear you say that you wouldn't do it again if you were given the choice? Because there's a saying in business that there's no such thing as a good or bad asset. There's just what you paid. Yeah. And when you first went into single grain, I believe that Neil Patel was one of the partners and you actually bought Neil out of his share of the business. So what did you see in Single Grain that your business partners didn't? And how do you view it now with the passage of time, now that it's such a successful company? Yeah, t time tells a lot, doesn't it? Uh, so um, when I came, when, I, when Neil said, hey, come help save this company, it looks like you did good with Treehouse, come help save this company, I wasn't interested because I, I worked in the agency world before and I was like, this business is not that scalable. And I, I thought I was the most amazing thing because I worked in tech, right? So, you know, you know, I, I thought I had the halo effect around me. I was like, I work in tech. I don't, you know, this is not scalable, right? And um, so, but, but then I, 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 I sat back for a second. And I thought to myself, this is an opportunity to, if I can turn this company around, I think I can do a lot of different things, right? So I was, I, I think I wanted to give myself more confidence. So turning a company around that had, um, you know, our, our service is no longer working. The team no longer was relevant because the service was no longer relevant. And so this was a full turnaround. So I had to basically uh, continue to fly the plane while rebuilding the engine in the air, right? So it's a plane that was going down while building the engine out. And so I came in as a number two for the company and six months into the job, um, Neil decided he wanted out. And then the, 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 four, the three other partners decided they wanted out too. So I, and Neil as a friend was telling me, Hey, there's no brand equity here. There's nothing here. You should get out. And he was probably right at the time. There was nothing. And so I got his shares for a dollar and I got the other partner's shares for a dollar. So $2 out of pocket was what I paid for the company. The rest was seller finance through the company. And I put in a contingency saying if the company failed, I would owe nothing. Um, so to me, it was an asymmetric bet going back to poker. If I won, like heads, I win, but I win a lot because I, I can, it's unlimited upside. If I lose, I don't lose much money. I lose the $2 out of pocket and I lose my time, but it's an MBA crash course. So to me, it's winning on both sides. And so uh, why I wouldn't do it again. When you look at stocks, if you lose 100% or sorry, no, no, no. If you lose 50%, you have to gain back 100%. So it was a failing asset. It was just getting worse and worse. Um, 
should I have done that? In retrospect, I probably should have just started my own thing. It probably would have been a lot less headache. Um, you know, because a year into the job, job, nobody had confidence in me anymore. We dropped all the way down to one employee, and my outside accounting firm said, "Hey, it might be time to shut it down." And I almost took a, a, a full time job. So that was probably the, the lowest point. But um, I mean, I have no regrets now, so I can say that because largely everything played out. So. Yeah, and I love the Crash Course MBA. That's fantastic. You certainly don't need to sit in lecture theatres for that, do you, mate? Nope. Nope. It's tough. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about self-awareness for a minute. And this seems to be a theme in everything you do. So, for example, you had the awareness at one point to understand that thinking of yourself as an expert was actually a limiting belief, and it led to you losing some of your drive to improve. Have you seen many successful people in Silicon Valley who don't have strong self-awareness? And if so, what gets them through in the absence of that trait that I consider to be quite essential in a leader? Yeah, I, I think you probably see a lack of self-awareness just across the board, not even just in tech, but I think you, especially you see it in like maybe probably the internet marketing affiliate world, definitely, um, just anywhere. I, I think um, it takes a lot of work. And I, I suspect, Marty, you've probably done a lot of you know work on yourself. I think for me, it's uh, taking taking actual time on Fridays to just block it completely out and just think, you know, think about what's frustrating me, think, think about what I want to start, stop and keep like, that's good for strategizing. But then, um, I've worked with coaches over the years and there's no coach that's nearly as close to the coach that I have now. Um, and he coaches, you know, we're talking about, you know, the CEOs, publicly traded companies, you know, these SaaS companies, and he used to be a VC. So I think there's something to be said about working with a coach that's been there, done that and um, knows how to ask questions and doesn't prescribe. So he doesn't tell me what to do, but we talk about things and he just asks me the right questions and I continue to unwind my programming from when I was a kid. Um, you know, I think a lot of our, our wiring is from when we're children um, all the way up to 22. And um, we're, a lot of my behavior, how I run things, how I behave, it's all from that. And now when I'm maybe having a conversation with you, I'll realize and I'll stop myself if I, if I find myself doing something from my childhood um, because I don't need that anymore because I'm not a child anymore. So all that to say is it's a lot of work. And, um, you know, if I'm going to, if I look at my brain as software, I want to be constantly updating my firmware. I think a lot of people just stop, especially once they, they feel like I've made it. I've been there, done that. Like, I, I think the moment I feel like I've, I, at least for me, because I, I know my behavior, if, the once I, I know I feel like I've gotten there, that's when I start to become cocky and arrogant and I start to kind of lose my edge. I love that analogy of upgrading your own firmware all the time because if you don't keep doing that, then eventually none of the apps out there run on your platform anymore. Yep, exactly. You become outdated and none of them talk to you anymore. There you go. So you talk about surrounding yourself with the best talent and you also use an interesting quote from Andrew Carnegie in your book uh, about the power of teamwork and having individuals work together in pursuit of a common vision. What's the secret sauce here? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, in the early days, I think any high performer likes to think of, you know, me, 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 me in the very beginning. It's like, look at all that I can do. And then you realize, um, I use this analogy in the book. I remember watching a movie, a Chinese movie when I was a kid. And, um, you know, the, the, the instructor was like, you know, hey, break this chopstick. Boom. The kid snaps and no problem. And then the, the instructor pulls a handful, like maybe 50 chopsticks or so. And then no chance. The kid just can't break it. Right. So it just shows the the power of, of teamwork. And. You know, one of the, the ultimate forms of leverage or the, the oldest forms of leverage is, is labor, right? And I'm using it in a very crude way, but it's, it's at the end of the day when you're hiring people, it, it is labor, right? You, you build a team around you and then you can have the team, you know, create um, 
code. They can write code, and then you can you you can you know do more stuff in your sleep. So I'm just looking for high leverage points. And you know, early in my career, I thought you know going cheap. You know, a lot of people talk about using VAs, and I think that's all great. You can hire people from the Philippines, third world country. I think there's a time and place for that. But if you're trying to build something for bigger, uh, with more scale for the long term, and I'm not saying everyone needs to do this, you start to realize, holy crap. It makes sense to pay the big bucks. It, if we're going to bring on this certain CEO that has this Rolodex of, of um, you know clients they've worked with over the years, they might be worth three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, six hundred thousand dollars a year in salary, and maybe another two to three hundred in in bonuses, right? And those those are those are really big numbers. And had you asked me that, you know, five ten years ago, I would be like, no way, I'll, I'll never pay that, right? And I actually know friends right now that are super successful. They're, they're like. I will never ever pay that on principle. I'll never pay above ninety thousand for this marketer. But then, if that marketer, if you pay one fifty, can do the job of four or five people, and they can hire other people, more forms of leverage. Um, it's just a reframe. And so, um, to me, the team is everything. But ultimately, if you want to keep the team, all the things, you, the cliches you hear about culture, yeah, all the top CEOs in the world, the number one thing they obsess over, and you know the answer, Marty. It, it's culture, right? It's culture, and then to, to keep that going, it's communication. Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. Eric, look, that's fantastic. And you've put so much value into the world through your content. Where should the No Bullshit Leadership community go to find out more? Um, of course, apart from going and buying your book, Leveling Up, How to Master the Game of Life, which I just absolutely loved. Yeah, I appreciate that, Marty. I mean, uh, they can go to levelingup.com uh, or you can just hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Eric, O-S as in sugar, I-U, at Eric Osu. Eric, thanks so much once again for joining us. I loved your insights and I know it's going to really resonate with the No Bullshit Leaders in our community. Thanks for having me. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 137. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please take a few moments to share this episode with your leadership network. I look forward to next week's episode. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. <laughs>